That'll be our text this morning, and the title is Growing in a Diminishing Way. Growing in a Diminishing Way. I know that's kind of a little bit paradoxical, and that's intended. Uh, so growing in a diminishing way. This is God's call for, I think, for disciples. That as we grow in Christ, we would continually grow humbly, right? We would get more humble uh, rather than get more um, self-exalting, more prideful. We get more humble as we, <coughs> as we grow with Christ. Well, let me pray before we read the text. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your word this morning, we confess that it is alive. And we confess, Lord, that, uh, that we need your word to speak to us. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform us. Lord, that you would sand down the rough edges, that you would polish our hearts and our minds to be a radiant, shining example uh, of your gospel. We pray, Father, that you would confront sin in our hearts. Let no sin remain unchecked, Father. But also, Lord, would you, uh, would you work in our lives to, uh, to draw us near to you, to encourage us toward righteous living, toward joy-filled living. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> a Sports Illustrated columnist reported of an incident between a Chicago, fielder, a Chicago Cubs outfielder back in the day, Andre Dawson, when he played for the Cubs, and umpire then, Joe West. During the game, West called a strike on Dawson, and he vehemently disagreed with the umpire. Once the dispute ended, and literally once the dust had settled, you know in baseball they like to kick dust when they go up and talk to the umpire, once all that had settled, Dawson was ordered to pay a $1,000 fine for his dispute and his disrespect. Dawson later wrote the check, but on the memo line of the check, he wrote, Donation for the Blind. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Uh, you know, we always want to have the last word, don't we? We always want to have the last word. Deep down, there's that little voice inside us that, that wants to make certain our position is understood because we're right and the other people are not right. We often feel the need to retaliate when we're wronged by another's unjust action, or by their hurtful words. And you know, we learned this from early on. We learned this as early on as childhood, either through, uh, through peers or through siblings that we, uh, that we grow up with. We can all think of ways that we've retaliated against siblings in our, younger, uh, in our younger days. But what's behind this attitude? What's behind this desire to retaliate? I think this is what Jesus is getting at in this text, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 38 through 42. He speaks to this attitude of retaliation. Follow along if you found your place, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs of you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is calling his disciples to growth through diminishment, through humility. 
every example that he gives here, there are four examples he gives here of how to carry out and how not to carry out this law of lex talionis, the law of retribution. And I think what Jesus is saying here, what I want us to see this morning, is the diminishing disciple grows more concerned with advancing God's kingdom and less concerned with exalting one's self. These are hard words. And perhaps like the disciples, when we hear them, we find ourselves asking similar questions as they asked. When they first heard this teaching, they probably asked things like, surely he he doesn't mean what I think he means, right? I mean, who can do this? Who can live in this? When you get slapped on the right cheek, let him slap the left cheek, right? But this is what Jesus is saying, and these these are hard words. But who can do this? Only the only the person who can the only person who can do this are those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Only those who are empowered by God's Holy Spirit can live out such an ethic. Only those who are born again by the transforming power of Christ can live out such an ethic. This isn't an ethic, though, for non-Christian society. It's not an ethic for the state, and it's not it's not a proof text for pacifism. This isn't how society at large works. This is how kingdom citizens live. And so don't miss the boat here. Who who Jesus is speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to believers. And so the call of discipleship in Christ is otherworldly. It's altogether different from the present world that we live in. Disciples are called to live lives, are called to lives of of exceeding righteousness. We look back at chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus says to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. So we must come to grips and come to terms with the goal of kingdom living. And the goal of kingdom living for any disciple is to fix our eyes on Christ and to live in such a way that we promote the gospel of Christ to an ever-watching world. When someone looks at your life, believer, they ought to see the gospel of Christ being lived out, this good news of Christ. So Jesus turns to the sin of retaliation, and he confronts a wrong interpretation. Verse 38, he says, you've heard that it was said. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, I'm sure that you've heard someone use that phrase. And most of the time when they use that phrase, they use it to justify a vengeful act. But we should note that the Old Testament actually has this law in it. Exodus 21, 24 and Deuteronomy 19, 21 cite this very law, the lex talionis, the law of retribution. Listen to Leviticus, follow along on the screen, Leviticus 24, 19, which says the same thing. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner, And for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So here's God's word. Here's God instituting capital punishment. Here's God instituting, or putting in place, affirming capital punishment. Here's God affirming the law of lex talionis. And then we need to remember what Jesus said. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, right? I came to fulfill the law. 
But here's the thing. The text here in Matthew, verse 38 and 39, particularly verse 38, illustrates how human nature really remains unchanged. Because you see here, the law was never intended for personal retaliation. This law was intended for judges to carry out, and it put parameters around how judges were to carry out the law. And judges are those who represent the government as an extension of God's ordained authority. And so judges are to act justly and rightly, and so this law was to guide and to guard against overreach of the courts. This law was never intended to be carried out in a personal way so that vengeance became a person's. It was to go before the court. It was to be done justly. So it also guarded in a sense that a beggar who was caught stealing bread wouldn't lose his hand, right? So it it went both ways. It guarded against both extremes. So Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So here's the issue. I know this is a long intro, but here's the issue. The issue for disciples of Christ is, how do we display the gospel so that we advance God's kingdom even when we are wrong? How do we display the gospel so that we advance God's kingdom even when we are wronged? So Jesus calls his disciples to a diminishing life. The goal of the diminishing disciple is to put down the unholy and unrighteous desires of retaliation, entitlement, minimalism, even self-centered living. And I think what we see in this text are four areas, four ways of growth for the diminishing disciple. So a diminishing disciple first grows forbearance. I thought about using the word cultivates here because it makes better grammatical sense, okay? But I intentionally left grows because I want us to think in terms of how we pick fruit from a tree, all right? Something that grows in our lives. And so a diminishing disciple first grows forbearance. That's positively speaking. Negatively, we would say we must empty ourselves of the spirit of retaliation, but we must grow in forbearance. Look at verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The word resist, it means to refrain from personal acts of retaliation. And so Jesus is commanding, and he's condemning, actually condemning personal vendettas And he teaches his disciples, this is yet another way to be salt and light in the world, right? Verses 13 through 16. We're called to be salt and light. Here's how you stand out. Here's how you shine light in the midst of darkness. Remove this spirit of retaliation. Exercise forbearance. Grow in forbearance, right? This is how you do it. It's by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can do on your own. It's not natural. And so he says, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. Now understand something about this culture. If somebody slapped you on the right cheek, it was a double insult. Because they won't slap with, you know, in order to slap me on the right, on the right cheek, you've got to slap me with your left hand, right? But they wouldn't slap with their left hand because the left hand was used for other things in that culture. They, you know, when they went to the restroom and that sort of thing. So it was 
uh, it was something that they wouldn't use the left hand for. They would use the right hand. And so for someone to slap with the right hand or on the right cheek, they would have to backhand slap. And so this is a double insult, and it's significant. This is a cultural clue, but it's, it's something that helps us to understand what Jesus is saying. What he's saying here is this is a huge insult. Today, it would be, it would be like somebody spitting in your face. That kind of an insult. In fact, that's a significant insult. If someone spit in your face, if someone spit in my face, I, I wonder how we would respond. Would we be able to hold back from returning the favor? Or even doing something worse, right? One of the reasons this text is good for me to preach is because if I'm being transparent, if I thought about what would happen if someone spit in my face, I'd probably want to punch them. I mean, that's the reality. And so what does that, what does that tell me about the way that I'm thinking? What does it tell me about what's in my heart, what's buried deep down? What's it tell me about this distinction between kingdom perspective and worldly perspective and how deeply this is ingrained in my own life right so what we what we see here is jesus challenging these very deep insults that might happen in the life of a disciple and he's calling his disciples to to look beyond that and to have forbearance to grow in forbearance in case anyone's tempted this morning if I say something that offends you, don't slap me when we walk out of here or spit in my face. I, I might have trouble responding. I'm still working on that. So Jesus' words should shape our response to people. It should shape our response to people in the workplace, in the homeowners association meeting, at school, you know, when we're mistreated. It, it, should, it should shape our response to everyone. So I think there are two important distinctions I want to make quickly. One, Jesus is prohibiting retaliation that comes through anger and through resentment. You know, the best commentary on Jesus' life, or the best commentary on Jesus' words, rather, is his life. He wasn't a hypocrite. The one who had the power over all creation suffered a cruel and unjust just death on the cross. He could have called angels down from heaven to rescue him, but he didn't. And as the one who commanded the demons to flee, he could have commanded the Roman soldiers to stop torturing him and stop beating him, but he didn't. And as the creator of all things, he could have broken the instrument of death, his cross, but he didn't. Instead, what did he do? He endured persecution. He endured suffering. He was spit on. He was slapped. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He was crowned with man's sin. And how did he respond in the midst of all of it? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. You see, his attitude was an attitude of compassion. His heart was filled with grace toward his persecutors. He exemplified forbearance and grace in the midst of his greatest suffering. So how does God desire to transform your response, believer? By the Holy Spirit at work within you, how does God desire to transform your response? The second distinctive is notice the shift from potentially life-threatening issues in verse 38 to insults. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39, he, he kind of turns to insults, this backhanded slap, slap on the right cheek. And I think it's important just to point this out and move on, that Jesus isn't saying if a person breaks into your home that you shouldn't defend yourself or defend your family, or if a person breaks the law or commits a crime that they shouldn't be prosecuted. 
Instead, Jesus is teaching that our motives in justice must be pure and not driven by a vengeful spirit. So emptying ourselves of the spirit of retaliation begins with an awareness of our own need for God's grace and mercy. And then we're able to exercise that toward others. Only then will I be able to exercise a godly forbearance toward others. Right? Something happened to Hudson Taylor as he was he was a missionary in China and he's waiting for a boat. He had held a boat and a, a, a wealthy Chinese man came up and Hudson Taylor was dressed in the native decor, native attire. Uh, and as he's waiting about to get on the boat, this man comes up, runs behind him and pushes him and thrusts him into the mud. And uh, Hudson Taylor gets up. He doesn't say anything. And the boat uh, captain says, uh, this foreigner called the boat and uh, I'm not going to take you. He's going to get on the boat. And so at that point, Hudson Taylor gets on the boat and he invites this Chinaman to come on the boat with him. And he sits down and begins telling him a story. And he begins telling him about why it would, why it would be that he would behave so differently. And the reason, he says, it was because of the grace of God in him. And so Taylor, Hudson Taylor said the conversation that followed left him with the impression that he had made a deep impression upon the man and upon his soul. So here's the challenge, church, as we empty ourselves of the spirit of retaliation. We're filled with the grace of God and we're open to be used by God for advancing his kingdom. So I want to challenge us with that perspective this morning, that we remove the spirit of retaliation and that we submit ourselves to the Lord. And that we seek to exercise God's forbearance. Well, secondly, a diminishing disciple grows reconciliation. The challenge here is to empty ourselves of the spirit of entitlement. In verse 40, Jesus is saying, after sustaining a smaller loss, we ought to be prepared to endure a greater loss for the sake of our testimony. In verse 40, it says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, the tunic was the shirt that went under the outside coat. In the court of law... You could sue for the tunic, but you could not sue for the cloak. The cloak was the most important part. It helped someone stay warm at night. They would wrap up almost like a blanket with a cloak. And so what Jesus is saying here is when someone takes you to court and wants to sue, sue you for your tunic, your, your shirt, give them the coat as well. Don't hold it back. Now, I think this challenges an entitlement mentality. This is a very un-American perspective. But Jesus isn't contradicting, uh, contradicting the Lex Talionis. Instead, he's, he's challenging the autonomous personal entitlement mentality that says, I'm going to seek retribution out for myself. And so the illustration here is of a particular difficulty because we, we live in a culture where people sue one another at the drop of a hat. And what Jesus is saying in verse 40 actually even points us back to verses 25 and 26 of chapter 5, where he says, if you're going to court and someone has something against you, remember, this is reconciliation, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And so though the disciple in verses 25 and 26 seems to be at fault, the real issue here that Jesus is speaking to is going above and beyond to promote reconciliation. You know, almost immediately when we read this, we want to focus on who's at fault here. 
We want to know, what's the, what's the deal? Who's at fault? Because, because we're entitled to what's fair. But this goes to show us the spirit of entitlement that's within all of us. Jesus suffered at the hands of God-forsaking opponents, and he bore our sins all for the sake of reconciling God and man. Chuck Quarles, in his commentary, says that this, the command teaches that rather than retaliating against an opponent, Jesus' disciples should pay what is fair and required by the court, plus an additional amount that seeks to make amends for mistakes and earns the respect of the opponent. Different perspective than we have, right? You see, the way we seek for justice and stand against injustice should complement our witness and further the gospel rather than hinder our witness and keep people from the gospel. This is what Jesus is saying. Our witness is important. And as disciples of Christ, we should empty ourselves of the entitlement mentality and seek out reconciliation. We should be willing to even suffer loss for the sake of the gospel. A diminishing disciple not only grows in reconciliation, but a diminishing disciple grows service. Grows service. The challenge here is to empty ourselves of the minimalist mentality. Look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You see, Jesus calls his disciples to go beyond what's required of them. During the time of Roman oppression, a Roman soldier could walk up to someone, they could commandeer that person and make them carry a heavy load for a thousand paces. And so a person was required then to walk those paces carrying the heavy load. And at the end, the soldier could then commandeer another person and have them carry for the next 1,000 paces. Now, we might apply this verse a little bit differently from believers who live under a communist regime or under a dictatorship. But Matthew is saying here, if anyone forces you, listen, it's the same word that he uses in, verse 20, in chapter 27, verse 32, Matthew 27, 32, where Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the cross of Jesus. He was a bystander that day, and he's forced into service. Could you imagine being singled out to carry the Lord's cross as he's walking to Golgotha? But in reality, in reality, disciples of Christ are called to bear the cross, are we not? Think about what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And what this means is... Because of our faith, hardships and times of suffering will come. But the diminishing disciple knows that the joy of Christ in life doesn't come from simply doing what's minimally required. It comes from doing what's not required. It's in the second mile that we demonstrate the grace of God and we see the grace of God. This is why Jesus is encouraging the believers, his disciples. Don't just do what's minimal. Don't just go one mile, walk with them two miles. Yet many Christians today, I think, view their relationship with God kind of like fire insurance, right? I've done the minimal. I've done enough to miss hell and to make heaven. I'm good. And then many forsake their discipleship with Christ so that there's no spiritual growth or maturity 
over the years. But believer, hear me, this is not what Christ intended when he calls us to himself. If we're still struggling in that, that same pa- I want to be careful in saying this, but, but if we're not making progress uh, in, in, our, um, in our devotional life and, and in, our, in our depth of prayer before the Lord, if we're still kind of at the same place 20 years after coming to Christ as we were when we first came to Christ, that we don't know any more about God's word, that we don't know any more in, in connection and relation to God than we did when we first became a believer, then there's, there, the reality is that we're not growing as disciples here. And so I'm not talking about looking from week to week, but over the course of years, is there a spiritual growth in your life? If you're afraid that you can't give yourself an objective view, ask your spouse, right? (laughs) Or have an accountability partner and ask them, ask someone you can trust and ask them to pray for you in this. For many Christians... If we approached our marriages or our jobs or our parenting in the same way and with the same mentality that we approach kingdom living, I think our lives would be falling apart. Our marriages would be in shambles and our kids would be hellions and and we would be unemployed. But hear my challenge, church. Let us not be slack in our zeal for Christ. Let us consistently gather with our faith community for worship. Let us consistently take opportunity to grow in our discipleship as believers through Sunday morning Bible study or through equipping classes. Husbands, let us lead our wives. Dads, let us lead our homes to know Christ and model knowing Christ. Singles, let us seek to honor God in our commitment and faithful service to Him. As disciples, let us realize that each new day is a gift from God to live for his glory in the world. And this is God's desire and design for all of his kingdom citizens. That we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in fellowship with one another and to know the joy of Christ. So let us empty ourselves of this minimalist mindset and mentality and let us grow in going the second mile, church. Let us press on to maximize our joy and effectiveness for God's glory. Hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, right? We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Friends, let us press on. Beyond one mile, let us go the second mile for God's glory and demonstrate God's grace. But finally, this morning, a diminishing disciple grows charity. A diminishing disciple grows charity. We must empty ourselves even of self-centered living. In verse 42, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, one area where Crosspoint has historically excelled, even continues to be an excelling area of ministry as a congregation, is this area of charity. God has blessed Crosspoint, the community of faith here, with generous brothers and sisters. And so I want to encourage us first not to grow slack in 
continuing this good work of being charitable in our giving. The ministry of the church, I think, ought to be the front line for all believers in promoting charity and the work of the gospel. And I think this is biblical. This is, what, this is what Scripture affirms. And so because of the tithes and offerings of Crosspoint, together we've been able to show and to tell the gospel to many people, many families who have been, who have been in need or currently are even now in great need from local families that Crosspoint has contributed tens of thousands of dollars to over the years uh, to the recent flood disbursements and in relief over $11,000 to international families through partnerships with Pastor George at Bulgaria Baptist Church or uh, Pastor Ronald at, at Faith Baptist Church in Busambatia where we give $2,400 annually or to Peter and Degra in, in, in Kenya where we give $4,800 annually to support his ministry. I'm not I know there are churches that give way more and churches that give way less. And my point isn't the amount. It's just to say that for this group of believers, for our community of faith, I praise God for the generosity, for the charity that is represented within our our covenant body. But Jesus's words, I think they go in tandem with this benevolence ministry of the local church. You see, the local church is to actually demonstrate the charitable activity that ought to be showcased in all believers' lives. His words even, Jesus' words even go beyond this in two ways. First, we shouldn't be so selfish to withhold charity from one who is in need. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. It is just our Lord's way of saying that the Spirit is completely wrong, which says, what I have I hold and what is mine is mine. I cannot listen to the request of those other people because ultimately I may suffer. You see, this is a self-centered mentality, but this is often one that flashes, at least flashes through our mind that we have to push back and suppress, right? We give for the joy of the Lord, and if we suffer, we suffer for the righteousness of walking in God's ways. But secondly, when considering our enemies, I think Jesus is also saying we shouldn't be passive-aggressive in withholding something of need if we have the ability to meet it. In other words, we shouldn't view our opponent's adversity as an opportunity to kick them while they're down. Instead, what we should do, what Jesus is saying, is we should express love and generosity. And so this gives us an opportunity, actually, to demonstrate the love of Christ and to demonstrate a forbearing spirit and to be gracious and to demonstrate charity to the one who has offended us. That's why, Je- that's why the Proverbs Proverbs 25, 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink, right? So the reason that we have is because God has graciously given. And perhaps he's graciously given for the very purpose of using us as a channel of his blessing to others. Jesus' words challenge us. They challenge us as kingdom citizens to live as ambassadors of his sovereign kingdom on earth. So our prayer is, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This morning, perhaps for you, you're being drawn to Christ today in a way that you've not experienced before. Maybe for you, you understand the need to be renewed and to have a renewed kingdom perspective. I want to challenge you and encourage you to pray to ask the Lord to renew your mind and your heart in this direction. 
Or maybe for you, you understand that the hope of the gospel of Christ is for you. And you've understood it today in a way that you've not understood it before. Maybe you're desiring to learn more about what it means to be a kingdom citizen, a follower of Christ or a disciple of Christ. I or one of our elders will be down front here this morning and we'd love to speak with you more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning to to seek out the Lord. Maybe maybe you simply need to confess things to the Lord today and spend time in confession before him. Maybe this morning you just need a prayer of encouragement for continuing to walk with a kingdom perspective. We'd be honored to pray over you this morning as well. And so we'll be down in front here this morning if you want to come and let us pray with you. Uh, If you want to just take an opportunity to pray uh, by yourself this morning and kneel down on these steps. uh, Or if you want to just kneel where you're at or pray where you're at, you can certainly do that. But you respond this morning as the Lord leads you. Our worship team is going to come up now. I'm going to pray. And then you respond as the Lord leads. Let us pray. Our Father.